This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Bobby, and I'm your friend who knows just a little bit too much about pop culture. Welcome to your weekly meeting of Pop Culture Fanatics Anonymous. If you were a kid between the years of around 1950 to the early 2000s, you might be well aware of the practice of getting in your most comfy jammies, pouring a bowl of your sugariest cereal, and becoming one with your couch as you watched hours of your favorite Saturday morning cartoons. It was a ritual, a tradition, a way of life. From Mighty Mouse to Scooby-Doo to The Weekenders, the Saturday morning cartoon was a pillar of the first 50 years of television's life and was fundamental to the life of the American child. Funnily enough, these cartoons also invited a host of controversy, whether from parents or from advertisers. For the month of April, we're taking a deep dive into the history of the Saturday morning cartoon, exploring some of the biggest shows from the era, and ending the month by asking the age-old question of what happened to the Saturday morning cartoon. It's going to be a very animani and totally insane month, so if that sounds good to you, let's get started. So this episode might not be as long as uh, some others, and I always say that, and then the episode ends up being 30 minutes, um, but we're just kind of going to lay the groundwork of the Saturday morning cartoon, assessing what is the Saturday morning cartoon, what is not a Saturday morning cartoon, and where this all even came from. So let's start out by answering the question of what is a Saturday morning cartoon. A Saturday morning cartoon was mainly characterized as cartoons from networks. So your ABCs, your CBSs, your NBCs, they weren't particularly categorized from cable networks like Nickelodeon or Disney. Like it wasn't, television didn't quite look like that in the beginning years of the Saturday morning cartoon. Like Disney Channel didn't become a thing into the 80s. Nickelodeon didn't become a thing as we know it into the early 90s. And Cartoon Network, again, it didn't show up until around the late 90s. So those constructs of like cable cartoon channels were not a thing in the early 50s. It was just like ABC, NBC, and CBS probably. So a Saturday morning cartoon typically was a 
what I would not say as cheap, but perhaps a cost-effectively made cartoon that usually hinged on some type of superhero character, some type of animal character, and by and large was made kind of in mass production. Like, if you were looking at a show from, say, a studio like Hanna-Barbera, you could tell if you watched the episodes kind of in succession with one another that they all kind of have a similar vibe to them. Yeah, the story might change from episode to episode, but they're very simple. They were animated in kind of a assembly line process, and they were able to produce a lot of content in one week for cheap, pretty much. So what is not a Saturday morning cartoon? And I think this distinction, there's a lot of gray area here, right? So think of a show and in doing the kind of research for this episode, I found that a lot of publications kind of use Saturday morning cartoon as like a cover all term just to describe like any cartoon, really. Like it's just, and it's not, that's not quite accurate. Like there are definitely some indicators that would give you an inkling into what is and what is not a Saturday morning cartoon. Namely, um, if it did not play consistently on Saturday morning, not a Saturday morning cartoon. I've seen a lot of people describe Batman the Animated Series as like, oh, a pillar of Saturday morning cartoons. And I, I, I promise you, I'm going to try and cut down on how many times I say the term Saturday morning cartoon, but it's going to be unavoidable. So I give me grace, but there's no other way to describe it. So but a lot of people described that show as like in that the realm of those cartoons. And that's not quite the case. Batman the Animated Series premiered on a Saturday night, but it played mainly during the week. And it was not really ever on on Saturdays. Now, be it that is contingent on market, it's contingent on channel, all those different factors. So I don't want if you're listening, you're just like, oh, no, I remember watching Batman, the animated series on Saturday. It's probably because you were in a market that syndicated it on Saturdays. All those things to keep in mind. Um, another interesting thing that I found during research for for this this month's topic is that if you were a Disney property, you probably weren't a Saturday morning cartoon. Funnily enough, Disney as a, you know, kind of a big player in the animation space, didn't really have a lot of stakes in Saturday morning cartoons for a very long time. It really wasn't until the 90s slash early 2000s with the advent of like the one Saturday morning block on ABC, um, which would then be called like, uh, was it like ABC kids? Um, like it was then that Disney decided to like kind of hump on the bandwagon, but Disney was a pretty late adopter of the Saturday morning cartoon. Like Disney really wanted to relegate their animation to film. And that is what animation was for a very long time. So this kind of leads us into like, when was the Saturday morning cartoon created? And it comes in the early 50s. So television as a construct, as an idea has been around since around the 1800s is when the idea of television was beginning to bubble up the idea of transmitting images via tube to millions of people has been in the lexicon for almost, you know, 200 years now. But 
the physical manifestation of television didn't come until around the 1920s, the late 1920s, around like 1927. And then television as we know it being this thing that is in millions of homes across America, a thing that children and parents alike are constantly interacting with, that idea didn't come into the 1950s. So television has been around for a long time, but television as we know it really didn't bubble up until around the 1950s or so. So that means that television is, as we understand it, less than 100 years old, which is a wild thing to see because it's just like, it is a construct of <laughs> of of life. Like it is as sure as the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. But the idea of the Saturday morning cartoon began to bubble up in the early 50s when mainly advertisers began to see that like, hey, there's a way that we could maybe make some money off some kids around this time uh, because kids are beginning to watch television and they're beginning to be interested in television. So as with most things in America, it all begins with, you guessed it, capitalism. So the Saturday morning cartoon slot wasn't as like defined like Saturday mornings or Saturdays in general and kind of the general like scope of pop Americana wasn't seen as like the time for entertainment like it was kind of just Saturday it is a day of rest along with Sunday but this idea this contract of the Saturday morning cartoon molded Saturday as a day within America for entertainment. It was a day where you would watch TV. It was a day where you would go to the movies. Like it, that was the day to take in entertainment in large quantities, especially large quantities and uninterrupted. So the beginning of the Saturday morning cartoon uh, begins with a mouse. And like I mentioned, it wasn't Mickey Mouse. It was actually Mighty Mouse. So the Mighty Mouse Playhouse was kind of the first what was considered to be Saturday morning cartoon. Now, I do have to note that there was a like small little cartoon short uh, called Crusader Rabbit that was pushed out in the 1950s. Um, and it was seen as the kind of the the first stone thrown in the the pyre of Saturday morning cartoons and just kind of cartoons in general made for television. Again, like I said, because television was new, animation was slowly trickling away from being something exclusively on the big screen to something made for the small screen. So that began with shows like Crusader Rabbit, Mighty Mouse, and then we got to see like kind of beacons of animation like the Looney Tunes and Bugs Bunny slowly trickling their way over to television as well. So it's funny because the Saturday morning cartoon technically did exist pre-1950. Um, it was shown not on television, but in theaters. So Saturday mornings were when you would see cartoons like Felix the Cat and Popeye and Looney Tunes in theaters in the mornings. But it wasn't the the societal construct of a Saturday morning cartoon. Like it was an activity of getting up and going to a theater and then, you know, spending the rest of the day playing. But the Saturday morning cartoon is different because it is housed within your home, you get up out of bed and you go downstairs or you go wherever and you sit and you watch these cartoons for for hours on end. So that idea was already kind of 
here, it was present, but then it was just shifted to, to a smaller screen. So like I said, Mighty Mouse was kind of the first big Saturday morning cartoon. It was the catalyst. It's what kind of got things going around that time. And I will say, it's not like Mighty Mouse was the first thing ever made for children on, on Saturday mornings. Like kids programming mainly before this kind of big onslaught of animation was live action actors speaking to like a group of kids and, you know, like doing games or doing little like quizzes or things like that, that would directly lead into some type of advertiser or some type of product. It would be like, you know, similar to like soap operas where it was like, this is sponsored by such and such, you know, like whatever soap brand or whatever it is. If you didn't know, that's where the term soap opera comes from because they were mini operas that were sponsored by soap and detergent companies. So just a little fun fact for you, just a little side note for you. So when Mighty Mouse kind of comes on the scene, it was almost like this kind of tester period. Like Crusader Rabbit was kind of the the inkling. It gave these television executives the idea of like, okay, there's something here. Children are responding in some way to to these to these little like uh, bits of animation on television. Let's keep going. So we keep going and we get Mighty Mouse and then eventually the biggest kind of beacon of animation for television around this time was the Flintstones, which came around 1960. So the 50s was kind of this experimental time of like, okay, we're figuring out what works for these kids. What are they responding to? What are they not responding to? Really kind of building the foundation for what the Saturday morning cartoon proper would become. And them kind of realizing, okay, there is a, a place in the market to speak to these children via advertisers and these shows. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to present the show and then also present a product for them to want to be enticed to buy. And you'll notice that I'm mentioning advertising a lot because advertising and the Saturday morning cartoon almost kind of went hand in hand. Like they were, one could say that a Saturday morning cartoon was just a vehicle for advertising. You wouldn't be wrong to assume that. Um, it was, they really do kind of, they work together. They had a very symbiotic relationship. And if you, you stick around, I hope you will, for the duration of the month, you'll see that advertising kind of is the the catalyst for these shows, but ultimately was also the death knell uh, for these shows as well, just with how abundant advertising was around this time. So arguably the biggest player by the time we get to the 60s, like I said, was the Flintstones. And that was produced by Hanna-Barbera. And if you know Hanna-Barbera, they produced the Flintstones, the Jetsons, Scooby-Doo, you know, like all of these shows that are kind of iconic pieces of television from the 60s and 70s and into you know around the 80s like Hanna-Barbera was the was the studio when it came to television animation especially for Saturday morning content so we get these we not only get like the idea of like reruns with the Flintstones so the shows that would be premiering during the week 
would play on Saturday morning, but we also got shows like Megilla Gorilla and Space Ghost and all these other like kind of smaller properties. And one thing to note about Hanna-Barbera and one thing that is very indicative of Hanna-Barbera, which I kind of mentioned at the top of the episode, is that Hanna-Barbera was able to produce and kind of be this big pillar because they were producing content in a very cost-effective way. I don't want to say it was cheap, but it was cheap. You know, like it was it was very cheaply made. And the way that they were able to do that is was kind of not cutting corners, but basically streamlining the process of animation. So that's where we get the concept of limited animation, which was basically, if you watch any Hanna-Barbera show be it scooby-doo be it the jetsons be it the flintstones there's always almost always going to be a sequence in any given episode throw a rock and you'll watch it where a character is running on a moving background and that's kind of the only like it it lasts for maybe like five to six seconds and it happens a long time like if a character is being chased or if a character is is like running in some form or fashion that was a cost-effective measure because you could kind of have this repeating background and this character doing the same motion that maybe was like you know accounted for maybe five to six frames and you could repeat that animation over and over and over again it's also why you see with a lot of Hanna-Barbera characters that many of them wear collars or ties of some kind so think about scooby-doo he has his leash think about fred flintstone who has the big collar on his tunic dress thing um you just a lot of characters had a collar piece and that was basically to make it easy to change out their if you're looking at animation as kind of like a series of of cells like animation was done on cells at this time because it was hand-drawn if you have on one layer the character's head, you can quickly change out their costume. You can change out where their arms are. You can change out where their legs are. Or you can change out what their facial expression is going to be. Like, it just makes it easier to keep one piece of the animation the same and only have to change maybe a facial expression or the lip flap, which is basically just the talking of the character. Those things really, really helped Hanna-Barbera and similar companies to be able to churn out a lot of content per week and not be completely run ragged. Now, this isn't to say that I'm sure animators from the Hanna-Barbera era weren't completely run ragged in a lot of different ways and were probably pulled into a lot of different places. Um, as far as how they had to animate. This fun fact comes from Collider, um, and they say, quote, Hanna-Barbera provided the lion's share of projects over the next 30 years from around the 60s onward, producing 249 individual cartoon series, which equated to about 1,200 hours of original episodes for television. That is a lot of television and that is a lot of animation. So they had to use those measures to be able to create that much content for not a lot of money, even though it was, it was, you know, it was, it was, it was cheap. It was cheap. I can't, I can't, I can't swing it. It was cheap.
Did you know using your browser in incognito mode doesn't actually protect your privacy? Take back your privacy with IPVanish VPN. Just one tap and all your data, passwords, communications, browsing history, and more will be instantly protected. IPVanish makes you virtually invisible online. Use IPVanish on all your devices, anytime you go online at home and especially on public Wi-Fi. Get IPVanish now for 70% off a yearly plan with this exclusive offer at IPVanish.com audio. So the 60s has Hanna-Barbera kind of being this main player in the television animation Saturday morning cartoon space. But then when we move into the 70s, animation experiences another kind of big jump, a big push. And that is from the like live action front. You get a lot of shows that are based on live action kind of content and a live a lot of live action like people like bands so you get like the jackson five had a cartoon the beatles had cartoons like you get these live action actors or live action figures who then get worked into animation like i think a lot of these um studios really saw animation as like a cross-promotional vehicle and that's really what it was from the beginning like i said like these animation hours were used as you know vehicles to you know advertise slinkies or advertise some toy like a lincoln logs or bb gun whatever it is and then that idea of advertising just became a lot more prominent and it became a lot more in your face and so there begins this kind of growing concern from parents of like can kids be able to distinguish a cartoon from an advertisement and more often than not they couldn't because they were so like the line between a show's content and an advertisement it was one line it was one line going in in succession with one another like it was kind of one in the same and so then from the national association of broadcasters in the late 60s we got the kind of mandate that advertisements for toys were not to be shown at the same time as the shows that the toys were based on so say for instance this article from encyclopedia dot com uses the example of the alvin show so you could not have a commercial for alvin and the chipmunk dolls to be shown at the same time as the Elvin and the Chipmunks show. To really be able to make that distinction between the show's advertisement and the show's show, pretty much, as two separate things. And so, like I said, we work into the 70s and like that idea stays around for a long time or for a while. They keep up with it. But then, you know, capitalism, the sneaky little person that she is keeps bubbling up and these advertisers and mainly toy companies are just like okay how can we work our way around this idea how can we still make money off of these kids who don't really know the difference between television shows and advertisements how can we make this work for us and make it work they did because by the 80s and the 80s is kind of the heyday of the saturday morning cartoon the 80s introduced an incredible amount of commercialism with these shows. These shows were just advertisements for for 
for dolls, for action figures. And so in the 80s, we get shows like Transformers and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and He-Man and all of these shows that were basically just out in front vehicles for toys. Like they were basically just like, hey, you've seen so-and-so character on this show buy the toy now and kids were definitely enacted to buy the toy and it wasn't just these kind of like geared for boys action characters too you also got shows like the Care Bears you got My Little Pony and you got the Smurfs that also really leaned heavily into this commercialism like the 80s is always talked about as a one of the highest decades for American consumerism. And that is not a joke. That it was very much a thing that was that was going on and that was happening. And it was a very big deal. Now I will say that because of those, the kind of growing concern from parents, that led to some more mandates, basically from the government to some of these networks, basically saying like, you gotta put in some educational stuff for these kids. Like, you can't just have shows that cater directly to them buying something. Well, let's let's teach the children too as well. And that's not surprising that this came around the 80s because a show like Sesame Street would have been on for 10 years and it showed the boundless possibilities of being able to teach children. So they were like, okay, you've got to start creating some educational content to show on Saturday mornings too to interrupt some of the just blatant commercialism that was going on so that's when we get shows like schoolhouse rock which is probably the the biggest example of the after effects of of this of this mandate it is made exclusively to teach kids about areas of history of politics of science of math of language so that's where we get all these like these songs that you probably haven't heard in years but once you hear the tune of it you immediately know what it is so you get songs like I'm just a bill which is probably one of the biggest examples of schoolhouse rock songs I was very partial to the schoolhouse rock like history songs so like the shot hurt around the world um the preamble song they're like we the people that one love it um what else oh my gosh there's another one that I'm completely blanking on. Um, Mother Necessity, like all of these different like little shorts were put out in between these shows just to be like, hey, we look at us. We are teaching the kids something. We're, we're teaching them about history via song. So we are not just advertising to them. So uh-huh. that was basically what... <laughs> what um, schoolhouse rock and there was also like a body one that I think like explained like what different parts of the body does and like all these little like kind of um interstitials is what the word that I was looking for these little interstitial shorts that were shown to give kids a little bit of knowledge in the middle of their toy toy commercials cosplaying as television episodes so during this era we also get the idea of kind of the 
infantilization of popular properties via television shows on Saturday mornings. So what that means, <laughs> and that was a lot of words to explain, we got a lot of baby versions of existing properties. So popularly, we've got Muppet Babies, and we got the Flintstones Kids, and we got a pup named Scooby-Doo. So you can see that a big part of a lot of these TV shows as time went on was, okay, this thing is working, this property is working. So let's use Scooby-Doo as an example. Scooby-Doo is a big hit. If you chart the history of Scooby-Doo, let's 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 chart it together because Scooby-Doo has had more spin-offs and more specials than quite literally any other property I've ever seen in my life. There was so many Scooby-Doo children running about absolutely insane stuff so just to to put things into perspective of like what was going on with scooby-doo around this time you have scooby-doo where are you that's the original show you have the new scooby-doo movies you have the scooby-doo show slash the scooby-doo dino mutt hour you have all-star laugh olympics you have scooby-doo where are you again scooby-doo and scrappy-doo the Richie and Scooby-Doo show, the new Scooby and Scrappy show, the 13 ghosts of Scooby-Doo, a pup named Scooby-Doo, what's new Scooby-Doo, Shaggy and Scooby-Doo get a clue, Scooby-Doo Mystery Incorporated, be cool Scooby-Doo, Scooby and guess, <laughs> Scooby-Doo and guess who, and then we have Velma, that is the newest entry into the Scooby-Doo-averse. So that idea of taking one property, so Hanna-Barbera cost-effectively made Scooby-Doo. And then from there, they turned out like 15 other iterations of this one character. That is so indicative of the Saturday morning cartoon. Now, th that isn't to say that the Saturday morning cartoon wasn't capable of churning out actual like good shows, because there were, and we'll talk about them in the duration of this month, mainly calling out um, two. But that is what a lot of these shows were. They were just like iterations of one another so like for every smurfs that you had you had the snorks which is a similar concept it's just the smurfs underwater and with little straw antennae off of them <laughs> like you had my little pony which sparked a lot of different spinoffs you had the care bears you had a lot of these things and I will say that there was kind of an expansion of genre around this time so you weren't just having the same type of show but you had you know, if, if you were a kid who loved the action shows, you had G.I. Joe and you had Masters of the Universe and Transformers. If you were like a girl who like loved Barbies or anyone who loved like the Barbies, the like fun and bright and colorful, you had Gem and the Holograms. If you like the magical, you had My Little Pony, you had the Smurfs, you had the fairy tales. If you like the more realistic, you had the Ghostbusters. Like if you wanted something based off of the video game, you had Super Mario Brothers show. Like if you wanted to something really domestic, you had Garfield and friends. Like there was truly something for everyone in this programming block in the 1980s. Like if you want to turn to what is the heyday of the 1980s, or if you want to turn to what is the heyday of the Saturday morning cartoon, you look to the 80s because there was just so much stuff. It was so much content being pushed out. It was insane, insane, absolutely insane. So that brings us to the 1990s, and that is when things start to kind of 
dwindle a little bit. And there's many factors that go into kind of the decline of the Saturday morning cartoon. It was a lot more government mandates, a lot of, you know, basically parent groups kind of up in arms about the content that their kids were being shown and how, like, basically how much consuming was happening because of that. Um, You just had the just natural decline of some of these, like, made for television animation studios. So around this time, you see Hanna-Barbera begin to kind of dwindle. You see Filmation, which was another major uh, animation studio from around the, the 60s to the 80s, begin to dwindle as well. Just the general landscape of television was changing and it was changing rapidly. Um, around this time, as I mentioned at the top of the episode, you get the rise of cable television with show with networks like the Disney Channel in the 80s, Nickelodeon in the early 90s, and Cartoon Network in the late 90s. And so that isn't to say that we didn't get some great shows from around the 90s and onwards. The 90s uh, for the 90s era for Saturday morning cartoons brought in a lot of um, exported animation. So this is when we see the rise of anime in the U.S. And we see shows like Sailor Moon kind of make their way over to the U.S. We see shows like Dragon Ball and Pokemon make their way over to the like Saturday morning slots that were no longer being filled by other shows, but they were like basically being put forth by networks where they were like, we don't really know what to do with these shows. So we're just going to stick them in this time slot and kids will watch them. And they became super popular. Um, another show, big show for the 90s slash like really the 2000s uh, was like Yu-Gi-Oh. So a lot of this exported animation, that is what kind of gave kids a window into animation from other places that would then become huge in the U.S. on its own. Um, around this time, we also got the Animaniacs. WB was doing real good for for this this time period as far as animation goes. They had you know, the Animaniacs, which then also was like a part of this larger universe of shows like Tiny Toons and Pinky and the Brain and Freakazoid. Basically all the like Steven Spielberg Presents shows from WB came out around this time. Uh, we got the superhero genre, which was a massive part of these Saturday morning cartoon uh, lineup from the 60s onwards. And the reason why I didn't mention it is because that is going to be next week's episode talking about all the superhero media that came from around this time. I didn't want to go into it a little bit too much because I didn't want to spoil it. But that is when we get shows like the X-Men, the animated series, which was a Saturday morning cartoon, not Batman, the animated series. Um, and so then that kind of leads us in the 2000s where the Saturday morning cartoon kind of dies. It goes away. It just, I, like I said, television was changing rapidly kind of in the background and the idea of a Saturday morning cartoon just no longer fit within the construct of, you know, television pop culture. And then it just kind of went away. Like all of these networks and shows either pivoted to different content. They began to focus on, you know, their during the week content the idea of television animation was also kind of morphing in a weird way. So it wasn't what it once was, where it was kind of this like destination 
television, there there begins to be a big kind of swing back to live action programming. And so that ultimately leaves us with where we are today, where the Saturday morning cartoon is kind of not a thing like it was. Um, Do they play cartoons on Saturday mornings? Yes, but the the tradition, the practice of getting up and watching a new episode of television animation on a Saturday for like a three to four hour block uh, was gone as we knew it. So I hope that gave a good enough overview of what the the Saturday morning cartoon was and what it is now, which is not a thing. Um, And I hope it made you a little bit excited for where we'll be going in the next month, just talking about cartoons, pretty much. This is a a cartoon month. I'm really excited. So I hope you enjoyed this week's episode, Afternooners. If you don't know, the Afternooners is my name for all of us. So if you made it to the end of this episode, congratulations, you're an Afternooner now. Don't forget to rate and review this podcast if you had a good time and it helps out the pod. You get to tell me how you're feeling about the pod and I get that sweet hit of praise and validation that is my life force and keeps me going. If you want to know where else to find me on the internet, you can find me at The Afternoon Special on TikTok or Instagram or over on Twitter at Hi, I'm Bobby, H-I-I-M-B-O-B-B-I. And if you're thinking, Bobby, I need to single-handedly bring back the Saturday morning cartoon to the children of today. They need to experience it. Bestie, I support that decision. And so I've put all that information for you in the description down below when you're done with your Saturday morning cartoon crusade. You're welcome. I hope you enjoyed this week's chat and that you'll join me again next week for another cartoon-themed pop culture deep dive. Later days, friends. Are you a Marvel fan? Matt, you know I am. Jeff, I was asking the listener. Oh, okay. Yeah, I thought it seemed like a weird question because, you know, we've been doing a Marvel podcast together for nine years now. No, no, I was trying to grab the attention of all the Marvel fans out there for this ad. Oh. I thought it was weird, too. You should definitely warn us. Good note, Ashley. Well, if you like Marvel movies and TV as much as we do, join us for the Marvel Cinematic Universe podcast. He did it again. Carlos King, one of the most sought-after executive producers in reality television. I am thrilled to announce Reality with the King, where we'll discuss all things reality TV. I have interviewed everyone from Nene Leakes, Teresa Judai, and Kenya Moore. Each episode, we will rehash shocking portrayals, honey. Yes! Hilarious shade! And all the drama. Reality with the King podcast is available wherever you get your podcast.